0: Okay, we're in between book studies. We finished James last week, and I'm praying about what to go into next. But we have a a little time to do something different. And so, I was thinking about Psalm 104, if you want to open up your Bibles to that. And the reason why it kind of struck me was, it's different it's not a dense theological passage. That is there are some parts of the Bible that are pretty pretty theological. Have you run into those and your eyes kind of glaze over? Well, the Bible is full of really different things. It is a vast Library. And Psalm 104 is not one of those dense theological passages. In fact, it reads more like a BBC documentary narrated by David Attenborough. And you know what David does? He takes you to some place you've never been before, some place you're not likely to ever go to in your whole life. And he shows you something that's right there. And you look at that and you go, wow. Nature is cool. And the psalmist here shows us some things not quite as exotic as David Attenborough. In fact, you could read these things and say, what? So what? Who cares about mountain goats and you could read this and kind of go I don't care it doesn't give me a theological tingle and a lot of people would miss what's here the psalmist is showing us things that we've seen before and they're not exotic but he shows us the meaning Of these things. And it's when you grasp the meaning that you go, wow. And you don't say nature is cool, you say God is cool. The psalmist is meditating, he's kind of meditating in public and shows us that he's meditating in scripture. And he's meditating on what he sees in nature. And he is increasing his grasp, his understanding, his appreciation of God's power, and his wisdom, his glory, and his judgment. And the meaning that he shows us is that we live in God's world. So we're reading here in Psalm 104. And it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind, who makes his angels spirits, his ministers, a flame of fire. You who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. Now the beginning point for the psalmist's meditation is Genesis. He's meditating on that first part where God creates the heaven and the earth. And he's thinking about the greatness of God. That God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And really, he's thinking about God himself. That God is clothed in light, He is the light of the world, He's the life of men. And God is the light in which we see light. He's the one from whom comes meaning. He's the one who shows us which which way is up and which way is down. Because He is God. He's before all worlds. He's eternal. And... The psalmist is thinking about heaven being above the material world. It is transcendent. You know, when the Russians went into space, they made a point of saying, well, there's no streets paved with gold up here. It's empty. And they wanted to conclude from that that there is no heaven and no God. But, the point is, they were at high altitude. But they haven't left the material world. And heaven is not so much altitude as it is transcendent. It is above this existence. And God is in a higher world that is. It's above what is called the natural or the mundane, this world. And when the psalmist says that God lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters, it's to say that God is above us more than distance. You don't have to think about, you know, big, huge beams floating in the air. Kind of like Wiley Coyote in the cartoons, running out over the cliff and then there's nothing down there and holds up a little sign that says ouch and then it's not like that. God is above us. And by the word of God, we understand that heaven is a transcendent reality where God's throne is established where there is a tabernacle that is the original of the one that you know, God told Moses to make. He says, I want you to make it like this. Shows them the heavenly reality. It really is there. And you notice that God established the earth, there in verse 5, so that it should not be moved forever. Don't you appreciate that? Now, you know, we live on a sphere. And this sphere is rotating at a speed of 1,037 miles per hour. And we're traveling in an orbit around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. Are the G-forces pinning back our face? You know, we're we're sitting here, pretty stable. Isn't it amazing? God has established the earth. Yes, there are earthquakes. But you know, for the most part, it's stable, isn't it amazing? It's all in motion. But you don't even feel the motion. Never mind that our galaxy is traveling at 100,000 miles a second. But God did found the earth to be stable. And so, you know, we would look up and say sky, overcast, ground, not going anywhere, nothing to see here, folks. What's on Netflix? But the psalmist looks at everything and says, You know what? This is the power of God. This is the faithfulness of God. And in the next series of scriptures here, it says in verse 6 You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the voice of your thunder, they hastened away. They went up over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place which you have founded for them. You have set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. Now, the psalmist is meditating in Genesis 6 to 9, or 6 to 8, about the flood. From God's power in creation, we're moving to God's power in judgment. God destroyed the earth with a worldwide flood. And this catastrophe covered the mountains. It was not a local flood. What it did was to completely erase all of the previous culture on the planet. They had cities, technology. We don't know much about it because God did not think it worth preserving. He looked on the earth and it says that every thought of man was only evil continually. And God gave time to repent, and they did not repent. So he says, I'm going to wipe them out. And when he did that, he did it so completely, there's nothing left of that culture before the flood. Everything that people thought was valuable and important, God completely destroyed. He has the authority and the power to judge because he's the author of life. And we see that not only did he cover the earth with water, but he also intervened to drain the water. That is, unless he had done something, the earth would have stayed covered in water it submerged even the mountains. There's no place that Noah might have found and throw out an anchor and kind of pitch up next to this little bit of mountain poking out and say, well, maybe we can build a hut on it or something. Imagine what kind of a weird thought it must have been to look out of that window and be floating and there's nothing out there but water. And as far as you look, there's nothing. Day after day. But God also made it go away by raising up mountains and going down into the valleys there in verse 8. That is, God actually did things to lift up the crust of the earth and to make things go down so that the water would recede. And, in verse 9, he says, you've set a boundary that they may not pass over. That boundary is God's promise. He promised Noah and said, I will never flood the earth again. Now, there's plenty of local floods, are there not? But not a flood that is going to destroy the earth. And he wanted... Man, to have some peace about that so that every time it rains, you would think, is it going to happen again? And he promised and he said, no, I'm never going to destroy the earth like this again. Nobody has to worry about that. But he does say, I am going to destroy it in fire. So, when it rains, you don't have to worry. Say, this isn't it. And because God is faithful to his promise, global warming is not going to destroy this planet. Even though we're told, ooga booga, global warming is going to get us all unless we get green. It's not. We're not going to die by flooding. God's going to burn the world up. Have you heard that, you green fellows? Don't worry about the water. You need to worry about fire. And if you don't have fire insurance, you're in trouble. All right. We look at the oceans. We look at the rivers, and we say, oh, that's pretty. And the psalmist looks at that and says, you know what, that could totally wipe us out if God weren't faithful. And so he looks at those waters and says, thank you, God, that you're faithful. Now, look at verse 10. He sends the springs into the valleys. They flow among the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. By them the birds of the heavens have their home. They sing among the branches. He waters the hills from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine, and bread which strengthens man's heart. Now, the psalmist has now shifted his view from Scripture and he's looking how God works in the natural world, and especially how the earth is satisfied from heaven. Okay? That is, these springs, in verse 10, that flow among these mountains, they provide water for every beast of the field and for all the birds. And eventually for man. So it's kind of a multi-level sort of a thing going on. And it says that, in verse 13, he waters the hills, from his upper chambers. So all this rain that comes down, collects on the mountains, flows into the valleys, makes rivers, and then, oh, here comes Bambi. Bambi leans down to the stream. We look at this and we go, David Attenborough, what are you doing? This is so boring. Couldn't you find something where a lion leaps on an elephant and eats it? This is like low excitement. But he's saying something here. God is doing a lot of things with just this simple activity of he causes it to rain, fills the streams. All the animals can drink. And further on down there, It causes the grass to grow so all Bambi can just eat the grass now. Fabulous grass, God. This is really, really good grass today. Causes the crops to grow so that man harvests those things. He's got the olive oil and he's got the bread and the wine. Now, you and I would say, well, it rains. Did you notice that? It rains. It just happens. And the rivers happen to be full. The grass happens to grow. And, you know, you throw a seed in, it grows. It does all these things. And it's supposed to. But what we're shown here is that God makes all this happen. It starts with God. And the animals are satisfied. Man is satisfied. Guess where it starts? In heaven. And so satisfaction does not come from the earth. It comes from heaven. Now, everything that God has made has a meaning. And this is what the psalmist is showing us. Look at verse 16. The trees of the Lord are full of sap, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted, where the birds make their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high hills are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He appointed the moon for seasons. The sun knows it's going down. You make darkness, and it is night, in which all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they gather together and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So look at this fabulous fundamental truth of life. God Made trees. So what? Well, they're his trees. And if you've ever looked at a tree, they are amazing. It's just, it's this huge thing which is alive. And then you see birds in it. Outside my window, I see trees, and I watch the birds sit in the trees and watch them push each other around and pick on each other and fly in, sit around for a while. What are they doing? And then they take off. It's like, what changed his mind? (laughs) Thought he had a good view already. You know, it's like, I don't know. Mindlessly just fly around because I can. But you know, in my backyard, there's also a pile of feathers that are in the, the strawberry plants that we're going to have to pick out. You know what that is? Remains of a pigeon that got caught on the ground because there's cats in my neighborhood, and they're always stalking the birds. <laughs> and boy, sometimes they score big time. And there's nothing left of that bird but feathers. Feathers because I guess even cats are picky. So it's like David Attenborough in my backyard, look at the cat, devour the bird. (laughs) Bloody, isn't it? So how does a bird lose the cat? Go up into the tree. And if you think about a tree, it is a perfect environment for a bird. For one thing, the branches are always just the right size for a bird, to grab with the claws, have you noticed that? No problem at all, and it's just right. And you build your nest there, and then the predators don't get you. So the cat circles the tree, and the bird looks down from a couple of hundred meters and goes, (laughs) as a bird will do. And you think, tree? That's it. Show's over, folks. Nothing to see here. But the psalmist says, God made trees for birds. And if you look at it, it's perfect. Right? So God is into making biospheres, environments. And that's what the psalmist is seeing and understanding. The trees are for birds. And then... We come to my favorite part, the high hills there in in verse 18. They're for the wild goats. Now, when I think about refuge and safety, I always think about underground bunkers, you know, with doors that are like bank vaults, and you go, now we're safe. No sunlight, If you step outside, you're doomed. But here's God's idea of a refuge. Let's make it way out in the open with no natural covering whatsoever. But let's make it steep. So steep that you have to have little tiny feet that are exactly suited to little crevices and just turn the mountain goats loose. You can just walk around on a huge mountain, and you're totally free to go anywhere you want and down on the ground, circle the wolves that would normally eat up these mountain goats. But the mountain goats just walk along impossibly steep cliffs and just jump, clickety click, and they never go whoop, oh dang, and the wolf goes. And that's it. You never see that happening. Because they've got these little feet that God gave them that are perfectly suited to that. What, it, what a great idea of freedom. Right out in the open, just make it so steep that only you can get around. And that's what he's saying. And then you've got these rock badgers. Little, tiny, defenseless, helpless little things. You know, easy picking for predatory animals. So what do they do? They make their nest in the cracks in the rock. And the wolf or whatever jams its snout in there. And of course, the little, the little rock badger kind of goes, because he's safe. He's small. He's helpless, but he ain't stupid. So, Big, huge mountain, little tiny crack. I'm going to hide in there. Everything's cool. Now, God is providing environments of safety and shelter. And it's not just mountain goats and rock badgers that God is concerned with. Because it says in Habakkuk 319, or is it Habakkuk? Which is a gill. Is it Habakkuk or Habakkuk? Habakkuk? Habakkuk. See? Now you know. In chapter 3, verse 19, it says, The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. So see, God is a refuge to us like a mountain. And we can walk. In the open, because he makes it so that we can do that little clickety-click thing and never go, oops, I'm going to wipe out. We can roam in liberty and not be cooped up in our bunkers. It's altitude and steepness that God gives to us. He seats us with Christ in heavenly places. There is no higher place. And he really does set us apart above our enemies. No predator can get up to the right hand of the throne of God. And that's where God makes us live, close to him. Now, the moon has meaning. Did anybody see the moon last night? I actually got a hug Because it was the moon. And it's like, wow, that's so romantic. I have to hug you. Score. But the moon has a meaning more than, please, hug me quick. It's like a cosmic calendar. You can tell what time of the month it is, what time of the year it is, by the calendar. What phase of the moon. See, and that's what the psalmist is noting, that there's meaning built in to the moon. And there's meaning built into the sun. It knows it's going down. That is, every time it goes down, you know where west is. And because of that, you know where east is. You know where north and south is. Because that's the way God set it up. There's meaning in the sun. And then notice that there's meaning in night and day. they are in verse 20. In darkness, that's the beginning of the day in Hebrew. It's night first, then day. And night is when all the predators come out and hunt for prey. That's why David Attenborough has to have special photography to catch the lions attacking elephants at night. Otherwise, you couldn't see it. But the nighttime is when the animals are out hunting, so man is safe inside his fortified house sleeping. The animals aren't going to come and get him. In the daytime, the animals are off in their dens resting, sleeping, and man can come out to work and it's safe. He knows he's not going to get jumped by a lion. All that stuff happens at night. This is daytime, right? Now, at this time in history, it's nighttime. Did you know it? As far as God is concerned, it's nighttime. So the animals are out. And that's why there are predators out there who attack other countries, destroy other countries. They rob, they steal, they fish, they scam. They do online theft. The animals are out. But, the Apostle Paul says, the day is coming. And that's when man can do his work, which is righteousness and love and service. And see, he says, we're not of the night. We're of the day. And so we're not going to act like the animals. That's why we don't act like animals. People who don't know God. That's why we don't lie. Why we don't cheat. Why we don't steal. Why? Because the day is coming. So God has ordered night and day, and there's meaning in that night and day that we gather as we meditate on Scripture. Now, verse 24 he says, "O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things both small and great. There the ships sail about. There is that leviathan which you have made to play there. These all wait for you that you may give them their food in due season." What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, they are filled with good. You hide your face, they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting that the psalmist is meditating on the sea, because it's been noted, we know less about the sea than we do about the moon. More people have explored the moon than the sea. So how in the world could the psalmist know what goes on there? Because I've seen videos of how dolphins eat. Have you ever seen those? You know what they do is they find schools of fish and they swim around them and they actually herd them up into a vortex. And then as they have them herded up, gathered up, then they swim right into that and they eat. And a couple of dolphins keep the swirl going, keep the fish herded up so that they can all go in and eat. Whales feed by swimming through huge, vast areas of plankton and krill. And they they feed it into their mouths, which strain out the krill from the water. And so they actually do gather in, just like it says here. Now, you notice that In verse 26, the ships sail about, and that is right on the surface. And mariners always sailed in fear because, you know, you get too far away from the the coast and the seas get so rough and choppy, you're going to die. Stay on the top. But he goes on and says that you made Leviathan to play there. And if you look in Job 41, you can read about how tough Leviathan is, how nobody can handle him, nobody can tame Leviathan, some kind of huge sea creature that you don't go fishing for Leviathan with a hook because Leviathan is going to kill you. You stay away from Leviathan. But Leviathan plays there, right? Now, the amazing thing out of all this innumerable multitude that god exercises his providence and his sovereignty verse 27 they all wait for you even leviathan as fearsome as leviathan is leviathan says okay god i need to eat and so God provides for them. He opens his hand and he actually feeds all those innumerable multitudes in the oceans. It's not just a, the food is there, it's there, you eat, duh. It says that God is actively providing for everything that he's made. And then notice in verse 29. God withdraws his face, and they're troubled. That means they're terrified. That means God quits sustaining them. And when he quits sustaining them, they die. God says, your time is done. Small, microscopic things right up to whales, and they die. And then God actively sends forth His Spirit to bring up another generation. And it means that God is continually sustaining life. He is continually taking life. He is continually renewing life. God did not wind up the universe Tick. Stick it on a shelf and walk away. These scriptures point out the fact that God is active in every area, and that He says, "Okay, I'm going to feed you. Okay, now I'm not going to feed you. Okay, now it's your time to die." He kills and He makes alive. God providentially orders his world. And what the psalmist does now is he looks at all these particulars and he sees the patterns and he brings out meaning. In verse 33, or verse 31, it says, May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the hills and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be sweet to him. I will be glad in the Lord. May sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Now, the psalmist is a reasoning, thinking person. And therefore, he worships God. In other words, he's focused on God. And what God does and says occupies his thoughts and his time. And it's right and it's proper to focus on God, to learn more about him. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. In verse 32, literally it says, This is the one who looks on the earth and it trembles. And he's emphasizing, God is the one who can so much look at the earth and <laughs> because of his power. He touches the hills and they smoke. God has authority and he's power and he's sovereignty and he's judgment. And the psalmist says, I will worship him as long as I exist. I'm actually going to make lists of all of God's perfections and I'm going to go over them in my mind. And as I look, I'm going to see patterns from which emerge meaning. And I'm going to strengthen my grasp on God and my understanding and my appreciation for what God is doing. Because he says, I want my meditation to be pleasing to him. Now this word meditation means that which occupies your thoughts. That which you give your time to. That's what you run over in your thoughts and think about. And you know, everybody does this. Everybody thinks about everything. And you think about the thing that's important to you, what concerns you, either your problems or what makes you happy. If you think about your problems, you're going to get wound up and messed up. If you think about what you like, you're going to get happy. Now, what the psalmist is doing is focusing on God, and in so doing, he's increasing his understanding. He's appreciating the meaning that God put into everything, and he's increasing his grasp upon God. Now, you know, when I was meditating on this, I found myself thinking, what about people that don't care about God? And, you know, they just look up at sky, look down at its ground. Over there, there's a mountain goat. I don't care about mountain goats. I don't care about fish in the ocean. I don't care about any of this stuff. What about them? And I thought, these guys just don't get God. And I thought, there's lots of people around who just have no clue And you know, the psalmist goes into that point the very next thing. He says, and he prays, may sinners be consumed from the earth and the wicked be no more. And you know, you read commentators, and they go, wow, this is kind of like harsh. You've got Bambi drinking from a stream. You've got fish jumping in the ocean. And you've got clouds and beautiful things. And everything is nice and wonderful. And all of a sudden, may sinners be consumed from the earth. Harsh. How come that? Why do we have to bring that into it? We were going so good. You know, and then it's like, by the way, sinners are to be destroyed. That was beautiful. But here's what the psalmist is thinking about. The more he understands about God, the more it compels him to seek after this God, who is so minutely involved with everything. He's not a faraway God. He's right up close. And he frankly cannot understand, why would people want to avoid this God? Why would they want to forget that, not think about how it is I've got air to breathe that is 78% nitrogen and 12% oxygen and some trace gases in there? Why should it be like that? Think nothing of 24-bit color in real time that are our eyes. You know, we walk around in miracles I don't care what's for lunch. (laughs) Well, there are people who live in the light of God's sun and moon. They drink his water, they eat food that God has made, and they don't want to know anything about God. It's the most boring subject on earth. In fact, I want to do what I want to do. And the point is, the people that don't want anything to do with God also live badly. And if you look at people around here that don't know God, they can't help but live badly. And it's not pointing a finger, it's just, my goodness. You could not live a a more wretched life. Because the further away, away you go from God, the worse it gets. So, Eventually God is going to judge the wicked and they're not going to inherit the earth. Don't you feel good about that? Like Elon Musk is not going to inherit the earth. Neither is Mark, what's his face? A little louder? Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, exactly. What's his face? You know, the guy that makes Facebook and thinks, I rule the earth. No, you don't. You know, before long, everybody's going to forget the name of Mark. What's his face? It's going to be like he never existed. And the same with Bill, more money than we'll ever know, Gates, what's his face? A pimple on the face of History. That's it. Now, these guys aren't going to inherit the earth. In fact, all life depends upon God, and God satisfies all life, and those who don't want God, they get to reject Him. Everybody gets to do what they want to do. And yet, at the same time, Everyone who rejects God forfeits their life. Do you really want that? Scriptures like this give everybody fair warning that they're in conflict with God. And it gives everybody a chance to turn to God and make peace through Jesus. But here's what we take away from this. We live in a world created by God. He runs it. He sustains it. And then he says, It's time you're done. He gives life and he takes life. That's what this world is about. And you realize God watches over every one of us. Man, if he watches over innumerable fish life in the ocean, he can keep track of us. And that's what the Bible says. He knows all about us. He's thought every single thought that can ever be thought about us. Have you ever tried to think about yourself? And really try to think hard about yourself. Everything. You run out. (laughs) You go, what else? And it's only been about two minutes. You don't even make a very good narcissist you can't even keep it going. Come on, think more about yourself. What about your childhood? Oh, well, I forget. God knows all about the time that the mid. And you know what Jesus says? You're more valuable than many plankton. Don't you like that? How many plankton? (laughs) Two choices. One is you can move away from God. You can say, I don't care. I think God is stupid. And when you do that, you move away from the one who integrates you. You know what that means? Makes you a unity. Puts you together and keeps you together. Now, When you don't integrate, you disintegrate. You know what that is, right? Things stop working. Holes appear in your clothing. Holes appear in your tire. Things come apart. Things stop working. Order descends into chaos. Destruction. And dust. Now, we're seeing that happen. Are you aware? Like people are losing the ability to communicate and exchange ideas. Those relationships are disintegrating. So that one side says, This and the other side says this, and neither one is listening. And so we're watching society disintegrate. The only way to achieve unity will be by government coercion. The government flexes its muscles and says, everybody stays in line. Anybody who steps out of line is going to be sent to a correction center. If people can't be communicating and be of an organic unity, then you have to impose order from outside, and that's called totalitarianism. It's already practiced in nations on the earth. North Korea, China, Iran. And it's going to spread. Because that's the only way to maintain order if it doesn't come from within the heart. All right. So we find that it even works on a personal level, that persons are disintegrating because they think, well, I'm going to solve my problems by fluidly changing my gender. But that doesn't solve any problems because gender ambiguity is a mental disorder. it is becoming disintegrated from what your genetic material basis of reality is. Every trillion cells in your body says you are a male. But because of disintegration, you say, no, I'm really a female. And that's where I'm going to find my unity, my integration. So you have some superficial surgery and introduce hormones, does that really solve the problem of integration? No. You've left your integration point, who is God, and now the further away you get, the more your personality disintegrates and begins to fragment and fall apart. Now, this is what we're seeing everywhere. Because people as a whole are moving away. And you know, the radical people out there are going to get everything they want. They're going to get total freedom to be any gender they want. Sleep and have sex with anybody they want. And make all the money they want. I mean, it's going to happen. Because they're pushing for it and they bully anybody that stands up to them and says, this isn't the right way. Okay, you can silence all dissent. You can crush everybody and make everybody do what you want. You can have it all. But they don't think about what happens when you go over the cliff, like Wiley e. Coyote, and realize there's nothing there. See, what use is it to gain everything you want, but you can't keep it? You disintegrate. That's where this world is heading. So that's your first alternative. Say, I don't care about God. I want what I want. And go out and get it. Fair enough. You're going to disintegrate. The other way, the other choice, is to say, I want to grasp that nature of God. I want to understand Him. Because Jesus said to know the one true living God is eternal life. And instead of disintegration, there's unity and building up and fruit and life. This is the only alternative. More life. And that, what that means is it compels you to know more God you become a worshiper because that's how you know God better. See, we've been having these fabulous prayer times, Monday to Friday. And as we worship God, we realize things in a deeper way. And so often we show up to these meetings. How are you doing? Terrible. How are you? Man, I am wasted. And then we pray, and when we get done, it's like, ready to conquer the world. How about you? Oh man, I can't wait. What happened? We just got a little more integrated, a little more alive. It's a real thing. How else in the world could we keep doing Monday to Friday at six in the morning? Well, You show what's important to you by what you meditate on and you ask yourself, what am I thinking about? Am I thinking about things like, I hate this, I hate my school, I can't do this, I don't even like living? Look at what your thoughts and how they run. I don't want to do this, I just want to goof off. I want to pretend I don't exist. I want to dink around. Or... God, I want to know you. I'm struggling. Will you help me? Give me life. What do you think about? It would be really interesting to just kind of keep a log of what you find yourself thinking on and say, is this important? Or is this God? Or what? Just find out. How do your thoughts run? Well, see, the psalmist here, he's taking his time And he's using it to grasp God. Have you ever read your Bible and just said, what was that? It's just like, I read it? I can't even remember what I just read. Happens to me all the time. Here I am, a professional. I'm supposed to be a pastor. Don't pastors have special powers that they read the Bible and it just speaks huge volumes and we see God all the time? It's okay for him. What about Joe Normal? Same thing. I read the Bible and I go, what was that? It's like I didn't read it at all. No traction whatsoever. You know know how you get traction? You have to take time and meditate in it. And just think about it. And give it some time. And when you do give it time, you begin to see the meaning. And if you don't take that time, you won't. It'll be this completely boring, useless exercise. It's no fun. So, that's why you take time. Did you know that? Now, if you really have been born again, you get to think about this. This is my father's world. There's an old hymn about that. And you think, my goodness, my father made this. My father made that moon. And all these things around here, that tree for those birds. In other words, we get to appreciate God. And you know what? You are his beloved. And His eye is on you. And you're more valuable to Him than many sparrows. And He's looking out for you. He is going to provide for you. Because you're more important to Him. And you can look for your satisfaction from above. It's not going to happen on this level. Does everybody get that? Well... Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you write these words down to teach us about yourself. And maybe on the surface it is boring. If it was boring, I'm really sorry. Because myself when i read this i thought who cares about mountain goats what what does it mean to me at all that there's innumerable fish in the ocean who cares and yet when we look at that we see that you're overall and that you're powerful and that you set times and seasons And you determine our birth, and you determine our death. And ultimately, we have to deal with you. Just like everything you have ever created must deal with you. And so we want to be pleasing to you. We want to know you. And when we do, we will rejoice. Please satisfy us from above. Please help us to know you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.